To get this episode of Forensic Tales ad-free, please visit patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. Forensic Tales discusses topics that some listeners may find disturbing. The contents of this episode may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Marcellus Williams was charged and convicted of murdering a St. Louis woman inside her home in August of 1998. Despite zero forensic evidence linking him to the brutal murder, he sits on death row today. Is Marcellus Williams a cold-blooded killer? Or another wrongfully accused man like he and his attorneys claim? This is Forensic Tales, episode number 214, The Story of Marcellus Williams. Welcome to Forensic Tales. I'm your host, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. Forensic Tales is a weekly true crime podcast covering real, spine-tingling stories with a forensic science twist. Some cases have been solved with forensic science, while others have turned cold. Every remarkable story sends us a chilling reminder that not all stories have happy endings. As a one-woman show, your support helps me find new compelling cases, conduct in-depth fact-based research, and produce and edit this weekly show. You can support my work in two simple ways. Become a valued patron at patreon.com slash Forensic Tales and leave a positive review. Before we get to the episode, we've got three new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Ken S., Kristen L., and Carol A. for becoming the show's newest supporters. Now, let's get to this week's episode. What would you do if you were accused of a crime you didn't commit? And what if the crime was the worst of the worst, first-degree murder? If convicted, you could spend the rest of your life behind bars. Or even worse, if the death penalty is legal where you live, you could be executed. Lethal injection, firing squad hanging? The circumstantial case against you was strong, making you look guilty. Still, the case seemed lacking in cold, hard physical evidence. There's no DNA tying you to anything. Regardless, you're convicted anyway. Now what do you do? Well, if this happened to you, you wouldn't be alone. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, 575 wrongfully convicted people have been exonerated based on DNA tests that demonstrated their innocence since 1989. But why weren't these people released sooner? Well, one reason is money. While genetic tests from 23andMe and other consumer websites are relatively affordable, the kinds of DNA tests used in criminal cases cost a lot more. In fact, DNA testing in a single case can cost anywhere from $5,000 up to $50,000 and sometimes even more. And who's going to pay for this type of testing when the results aren't even guaranteed? That's also assuming there's still testable DNA in the case. But let's say you have the money. 
That doesn't even guarantee the court system will allow testing to be done. According to the Innocence Project, even though all 50 states in the U.S. have post-conviction DNA laws, many of these laws are so restrictive and limited in scope that few people can actually access DNA testing after being convicted. But let's say you overcame everything. Despite being convicted of a crime you claim you didn't commit, you secure the money for DNA testing, and the post-conviction laws allow you to do so. What happens next? On August 11, 1998, 42-year-old Felicia Gale was found dead inside her gated community home in the University City suburb of St. Louis, Missouri. Felicia, a former St. Louis post-dispatch reporter, had been stabbed dozens of times with a butcher knife from her own kitchen. Earlier that night, Felicia's husband, Dan, came home from work and found his wife lying on the floor with the knife still lodged into her neck. From the beginning, there was a ton of forensic evidence for the St. Louis police to work with. There were pubic hairs found near Felicia's body. Bloody fingerprints were found on several walls throughout the house. There was even a trail of bloody footprints on the floor leading straight out the front door. The kitchen had been ransacked and almost every closet and drawer had been left open. But oddly enough, not much was actually taken besides her wallet and an old Apple computer. Felicia's expensive wedding ring and $400 in cash were still inside her closet. With all that forensic evidence, you would think that this would be a pretty quick investigation. Blood, fingerprints, shoe prints, hair. The cops could collect the DNA that was clearly left everywhere and upload it to CODIS. Bingo, you would have a match. But that's not what happened. Instead of any arrests or DNA matches, the case quickly stalled out. By all accounts, Felicia was a model citizen. She certainly wasn't what you would describe as your typical murder victim, if there is such a thing. She had been a reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for many years, but left the newspaper in 1992 to pursue full-time volunteer work. Coworkers who worked with her all there described her as a kind and gentle person who went out of her way to do nice things for people, even complete strangers. So for someone to break into her house and murder her practically in broad daylight was almost unimaginable. It just didn't make any sense. No one deserves to be stabbed to death for a wallet and an old Apple laptop computer. It wasn't until months later and only after Felicia's family posted a $10,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest that the cops received their first big tip. And the tip came from a pretty sketchy source. According to a jailhouse informant named Henry Cole, his former cellmate had already confessed to Felicia's murder. He told the cops that sometime during May 1999, many months after the murder, he and his cellmate, Marcellus Williams, were watching TV and saw a news report about the murder. Then not long after that, Cole said 29-year-old Marcellus Williams confessed to everything, saying that he was the one cops were looking for. According to Cole, over the next few weeks, they had countless conversations about it, and Marcellus over and over again admitted that he was the guy. 
He even seemed to be proud that he had gotten away with murder up until this point. He even went into a lot of detail during many of these conversations about how he got into Felicia's home and how he surprised and attacked her once she got out of the shower. Now, this seemed like a pretty plausible story for the St. Louis investigators working on Felicia's case. Marcellus knew things about the crime that only the killer would. He fit the profile they were looking for. He lived in the University City area. And plus, without any other leads, this story was all they had to work with. Three weeks after the murder, Marcellus Williams was arrested on unrelated charges on August 31st, 1998, and he shared a cell with Henry Cole at the St. Louis City Jail from April through June of 1999. After Cole was released from jail in June 1999, he went straight to the University City Police and told them about Marcellus's alleged jailhouse confession. His story was so promising to investigators because he knew things about the crime that had never been released to the public. So from the cops' perspective, they had no choice but to believe Henry Cole. But they knew simply relying on a jailhouse snitch probably wouldn't be good enough for an arrest, let alone a conviction. Jailhouse informants usually have plenty of reasons to lie. So that's when the police went out and got a second informant. Enter Laura Asaro, Marcellus Williams' former girlfriend. According to her, Marcellus had also confessed to her about the murder when they were dating. Like Henry Cole, she also seemed to know things about the crime that weren't released to the public. So now the police had two people who could be used as witnesses at trial. Even though both Laura Asaro and Henry Cole were facing criminal charges in unrelated cases at the time the police spoke to them about Felicia's murder, and both of them did have credibility issues, they were both believed to be telling the truth. Two days after speaking with Marcellus's former girlfriend, the cops got a search warrant for his grandfather's Buick. The car that Laura Asaro said that Marcellus was driving on the day of Felicia's murder. And inside the car, they found exactly what they hoped to find. The stolen Apple laptop, ruler, and calculator with Felicia's old employer written on them. All items that were taken from the house after the murder. By that point, the police had everything they needed for an arrest, and they didn't waste any time doing it. They had two informants saying Marcellus confessed to them about the murder, and now they had the stolen computer ruler and calculator found inside his car. Marcellus Williams was no stranger to the criminal justice system, which made him look like an even better suspect. He had a previous conviction of burglary, and at the time he was charged with Felicia's murder, he was already serving time for armed robbery of a fast food restaurant. So that established a pattern of behavior. This guy is a criminal, and he's been caught robbing people multiple times. But right from the beginning, Marcellus claimed he was innocent and had nothing to do with it. Yes, he was a convicted criminal, that's for sure, but he was no murderer. But the police and prosecutors felt differently. They felt like the evidence and the informants they had allowed them to build a pretty strong case against him by this point. According to the authorities, 
on August 11, 1998, Marcellus drove his grandfather's Buick to a bus stop and caught a bus to University City. Once he got there, he started looking around for a house where he could rob and steal some cash. He didn't want a house that looked like someone was home, and that's when he came across Felicia Gale's house. At first, he knocked on the front door to see if anyone was home, but no one answered. That's when he broke the window next to the front door, reached his hand inside, and unlocked the door from the inside. As he walked upstairs to the second floor, he heard water running like someone was taking a shower. This wasn't what he expected because he thought the house was completely empty. But instead of simply turning around and leaving, he went back downstairs to the kitchen where he grabbed a butcher knife and waited for whoever was in the shower to come downstairs. Of course, we now know that it was Felicia. Once Felicia got downstairs, that's when the police and prosecutors say Marcellus stabbed her at least 16 times. In fact, some news reports alleged that she might have been stabbed dozens of more times than that. After that, they said Marcellus went back downstairs to use the bathroom to try and clean some of the blood off his hands and clothes. He also grabbed one of Felicia's husband's jackets to try and cover up some of the blood on his clothing. Before leaving, the police said Marcellus grabbed Felicia's purse and her husband's laptop. Besides cash, the purse also contained a St. Louis Post dispatcher, ruler, and calculator, two items that were later recovered from Marcellus's grandfather's Buick months later. After Marcellus left the house, the police believed he had caught another bus back to his grandfather's car. He then drove the car to pick up his girlfriend, Laura Asaro. When Laura spoke with the cops later on, she thought it was odd that Marcellus was wearing a jacket when he picked her up. It was the middle of the summer and really hot, so wearing a big jacket like that didn't make much sense, so she thought he was trying to cover up something. She also told the cops that he had scratches on his neck like he had been in a fight, and the shirt he was wearing underneath had blood on it. Later on, Marcellus allegedly put his bloody clothes inside a backpack and threw them away in the gutter, claiming he no longer wanted them. Laura also told investigators she saw the stolen laptop inside the Buick that day. The next day, Laura said she went back to the Buick to get some of her clothes that were in there, but she said Marcellus tried pushing her away and didn't want her to look inside the trunk. But before he could, she was able to reach inside and pull out a purse, and when she looked inside, she saw Felicia's Missouri ID card. According to the police, when Laura asked him why he had some woman's ID card and purse inside his trunk, that's when he allegedly confessed to her about the murder. He then went on to explain everything in detail to her about how he broke into the house, thinking that it was empty, but ended up stabbing her to death. He told Laura that if she went to the cops about it, he would kill her and her children. So that's why it took her so long to come forward to the authorities. At trial, the prosecutor's case against Marcellus relied very heavily on two people. Henry Cole, his former cellmate in jail, and his ex-girlfriend, Laura Asaro. 
Without the two of them, they really didn't have much of a case. There certainly wasn't any physical or forensic evidence linking him to anything. But the credibility of both of these witnesses was something that really couldn't be ignored. According to Marcellus's defense, Henry Cole had a long history of lying and deception. Before he agreed to work as a witness for the prosecution against Marcellus, he pleaded guilty in 1996 to an armed robbery of a bank and was sentenced to four years of probation with 10 years of prison suspended. Even though he allegedly violated his parole over six times, he was never actually sent away to prison. Laura Asaro, the former girlfriend, also had credibility issues of her own. When the police approached her about this case, she was facing multiple criminal charges for solicitation. She also had testified against Marcel in another unrelated case in the past. But their credibility wasn't the only problem. According to the defense, a lot of their testimony didn't even line up with the evidence that was collected at the crime scene or the evidence that was collected later on. According to Laura Asaro, Marcellus had scratches on his neck when he picked her up on the day of the murder. However, the crime scene reports make no mention of foreign DNA being found underneath the victim's fingernails. So there wasn't any evidence proving Felicia had scratched or attacked him during the stabbing. Now, to be fair, the lack of foreign DNA doesn't necessarily prove anything either way. It's possible she could have scratched him without getting DNA underneath her fingernails. But according to the defense, that seemed unlikely. You would think if Marcellus had scratches all over his neck, just like Laura claimed, there should be at least a little of his DNA underneath her fingernails, the victim's fingernails. But they didn't find anything. A lot of bloody shoe prints were found throughout the house, like the killer walked around after the stabbing. However, none of the bloody shoe prints were the same size as Marcellus. Even the pubic hairs found around Felicia's body didn't match. They presumably belonged to someone else, too. Henry Cole told investigators that Marcellus had bragged to him about wearing gloves during the murder. But if that's the case... How do you explain the bloody fingerprints found everywhere throughout the crime scene? If Marcellus wore gloves, there shouldn't be any unknown fingerprints at the scene. It's not like he would have removed the gloves, wiped the wall with his hands, and then put the gloves back on. So according to the defense, that also seemed to contradict what the evidence suggested. Not even the fingerprints found at the crime scene could be matched to Marcellus. Based on the crime reports, none of the fingerprints found were deemed usable by the police, and all of them were destroyed before Marcellus's defense even had a chance to do their own testing on the prints. So it's unclear who the prints belong to exactly. That's all to say that no biological or forensic evidence collected at the scene matched Marcellus. On top of the cellmate and ex-girlfriend, there was a third witness who was very important to the prosecution, and that was Glenn Roberts. The guy prosecutors said bought the stolen Apple laptop from Marcellus after the murder. Glenn Roberts testified that Marcellus sold him a laptop computer taken during a robbery. 
He would have added that Marcellus said he was selling the computer for his girlfriend, Laura Asaro, but the trial judge wouldn't allow that testimony to be told to the jury because of hearsay laws. Hey, Forensic Tales listeners, Courtney here. Do you hate listening to ads? Well, you can listen to every single episode of this show ad-free through Patreon, starting for just $3 a month. And what's great? You don't have to change how you listen. You can still enjoy ad-free episodes of Forensic Tales through most podcast apps. As a patron, you'll also get other great perks, like weekly bonus episodes. This is where I give you my reaction to each week's story that I don't share in regular episodes. But more importantly, your support means I can continue to deliver high-quality weekly true crime stories. Don't forget, Forensic Tales is just a one-woman show. If you're interested in learning more, go to patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. That's patreon.com slash Forensic Tales. There's also a link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. The jury deliberated less than two hours before finding Marcellus Williams guilty of first-degree murder, first-degree burglary, first-degree robbery, and two counts of armed criminal action. And when it came to a sentence, he was given the maximum. The same jury who found him guilty also deliberated for less than 90 minutes when it came to a sentence. As to one count of first-degree murder, Marcellus was sentenced to death. And as to the rest of the criminal charges, he was sentenced to an additional 30 years to be served consecutively. His execution date was scheduled for January 2015. Despite the conviction, Marcellus vowed to keep fighting for his innocence. And in 2003, Marcellus and his attorneys filed their first appeal with the Missouri Supreme Court. Since Marcellus was sentenced to death, all of his appeals would go directly to the state's Supreme Court. His first appeal in 2003 focused on a lot of different issues his appellate attorneys argued warranted a new trial. They brought up everything from hearsay evidence relating to the stolen Apple laptop to unfair jury selection. Many people argued that the entire trial was racially charged because it involved a black male defendant and a white female victim. According to his appeal, the prosecutors struck six of seven qualified black candidates from the panel, creating a jury of one black person and 11 white people. They argued that evidence about Marcellus's attempted escape from the St. Louis City Jail where he was housed shouldn't have been used against him, but it was and made him look like an even worse criminal. But after reviewing everything, the Missouri Supreme Court found nothing in his appeal that warranted a new trial, and his death sentence was also upheld. In their ruling, the state Supreme Court said, quote, This court concludes that the death sentence in this case is neither excessive nor disproportionate to the penalty imposed in similar cases. Considering the crime, the strength of the evidence, and the defendant, Williams confessed to the murder. The crime involves a vicious attack during a robbery. Williams had a lengthy and violent criminal record. 
the sentence is not disproportionate, end quote. Marcellus and his lawyers didn't stop there. Two years later, they filed another appeal. In that motion, they challenged both the conviction and sentence, arguing that his ex-girlfriend or the police could have planted the ruler and calculator found in his car, and that the car was inoperable at the time of the murder, as his brother had testified at trial. But his motion was once again denied. In 2008, another appeal was launched. This time, Marcellus's lawyers asked the U.S. Supreme Court to order the Missouri State Supreme Court to hear new evidence. And some of that new alleged evidence included DNA testing that they believed would help establish his innocence. In this 2008 appeal, his lawyers included evidence about Deborah McLean, a woman who was murdered just a month before Felicia in a neighboring city. Not only were these cases similar because they were committed just a few miles away from one another, but Deborah was killed in a similar way. She'd been stabbed multiple times, and the murder weapon was a knife that came from her own kitchen, just like Felicia was. Marcellus's lawyers thought that comparing the DNA evidence from that crime scene to Felicia's case might actually prove Marcellus was innocent. If they could prove the two murders were later on related, this might help officially eliminate him as a suspect in either case. But that request for DNA testing was denied. His attorneys weren't allowed to do it, and there was no way of proving or disproving that these two murders were connected or not. By 2010, Marcellus and his team of supporters felt pretty good about where things were headed. A U.S. District Court judge had decided to vacate his death sentence on the grounds that his original trial lawyers had failed to investigate and present potentially mitigating evidence that Marcellus had suffered physical and sexual abuse as a child. His family condoned his criminal behavior, and he had been exposed to drugs, guns, and violence starting from a very young age. The judge thought that if the jury had heard about any of this, they might not have sentenced him to death. He probably would have gotten life in prison instead. Now, this judge in 2010 wasn't going to vacate Marcellus's original conviction. All he wanted to do was take the death penalty off the table because his lawyers never presented this mitigating evidence. Although this was initially a small victory for Marcellus and his supporters, this decision was eventually overruled. In 2012, the U.S. Court of Appeals reinstated the death sentence, saying that the evidence of childhood abuse would have undermined the defense's portrayal of Marcellus at trial as, quote, a family man who was innocent of such a brutal murder, end quote. The court also said that, quote, Williams cannot plead ineffective assistance of counsel alleging that a different strategy would have worked better, end quote. In other words, the death penalty shouldn't be taken off the table simply because he lost. Following that decision, Marcellus was sent back to death row, and three years went by with very little progress in his quest for a new trial, until 2015. On the eve of Marcellus's scheduled execution date in January 2015, 
the Missouri Supreme Court decided to step in and ordered that his execution be stopped until DNA testing could be done. He was literally just hours away from being executed by the time this ruling came down. On top of DNA testing, Marcellus's lawyers also alleged misconduct by prosecutors. They accused the state of not turning over Henry Coles and Laura Asaro's arrest records until just two days before the trial started. These records might have been important for his defense because they showed a pattern of mental health issues and drug use for both of them. And this could have been used by his defense to challenge their credibility. They described Henry Cole as a career criminal who would do and say anything for money. He also had a lengthy history of mental health issues that the jury in Marcellus's case never heard about. Even Henry Cole's old family called him a liar. In one particular case, Henry agreed to serve as an informant against his own son, although his family alleged the testimony he provided wasn't true. Laura, the former girlfriend, was also painted in a terrible light. They described her as a, quote, crack-headed prostitute, end quote. She was also described as a liar. According to her, she saw the victim's ID card in the back of Marcellus's car. But that same ID card was recovered from inside Felicia, the victim's house. So it would have been impossible to find it in two places at once. Marcellus's lawyers argued that she only agreed to testify against him in exchange for her own criminal charges to be dropped, and they were. She also received a portion of the reward money originally offered by the victim's family. What is commonly known as jailhouse snitch testimony is considered by many people as notoriously unreliable. A lot of these people are motivated and incentivized to tell lies for their own benefit. For example, if someone agrees to testify against someone else, and in exchange for that testimony, they get their own criminal charges reduced or dropped completely, they might be incentivized to lie or fabricate things. It's only natural for people to do things that are in their best interest. According to data collected from the National Registry of Exonerations, 8% of all exonerees in the registry were convicted in part by jailhouse informant testimony. When it comes to murder cases, these numbers are even higher. Ever since DNA had been introduced to criminal investigations and technology has improved, a lot of cold cases have been solved and a lot of people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't actually commit. Over the past decade, over 500 people sent to prison have now been proven innocent, all thanks to DNA testing. And in 2015, Marcellus's lawyers hoped that he might become one of them. The testing didn't happen overnight. It actually took close to a year for the results to come back but the wait was definitely worth it for Marcellus and his team of supporters. In 2016, about a year after he was already scheduled to be executed, experts concluded that the DNA collected from the murder weapon didn't match Marcellus. 
DNA had completely excluded him from ever touching the murder weapon. One of those experts, biologist Greg Hampelkin, even explained how DNA is transferred during a murder like this. According to him, quote, When you're stabbing, DNA transfers because of restriction and force. If you're stabbing anyone, you have a good chance of transferring your DNA because of the force. End quote. But that's not all he said. He also went on to say, quote, The DNA on the knife isn't enough to incriminate someone, but it is good enough to exclude someone. It's like finding a social security card with some blurred numbers. There's still enough there to exclude someone. End quote. Other evidence from the crime scene were also tested, including the bloody footprints and hair. Neither one of them belonged to Marcellus either. The hair also didn't belong to the victim or her husband. But prosecutors still weren't giving up. Despite there being no forensic evidence linking him to the murder, they believed their informant's testimony was enough to secure a death penalty conviction. And the Missouri Supreme Court agreed. The state Supreme Court ruled that his executions should still go on, and Marcellus was given a new execution date in 2017. This decision only seemed to generate more attention to the case, especially among anti-death penalty groups. Attorney Barry Sheck, who defended O.J. Simpson as part of his 1994 Dream Team and co-founded the Innocence Project, joined Marcellus's defense team. From there, the Midwest Innocence Project launched a petition to try and get the sentence commuted to life in prison. And Sister Helen Prejean, one of the country's largest anti-death penalty advocates, also joined the case. At this point, the most promising chance to save Marcellus was through the state's governor. Every single one of his appeals had already been denied, and there wasn't much that the court could do anymore. But under Missouri law, the governor had the right to stop any scheduled executions. So that's where his supporters focused their attention on. In early 2017, the Midwest Innocence Project wrote a nine-page petition to the governor asking him to appoint an independent board to look into Marcellus's claims of innocence through DNA. But this was a long shot. Over the years, only a few governors have ever appointed a special board to look at a criminal case like this one. Most of these types of requests just go completely ignored. But in Marcellus's case, it actually worked. The special board consisted mostly of retired judges from both federal and state courts. But before they ever announced what they found after reviewing his case, then-Missouri Governor Eric Greitens resigned in the middle of a scandal involving campaign finances and an extramarital affair. And what this special board concluded about Marcellus's case was never released. A lot of people thought that Governor Greitens would commute Marcellus's sentence before he resigned, but he didn't. Instead, he pardoned a lot of other people with crimes ranging from murder to rape. Marcellus Williams wasn't one of them, and he remained on death row. Fast forward to today, 2024. 
Marcellus Williams' new execution date could be scheduled as early as this month. Although no official execution date has been put on the books yet, his attorneys worry that that day could come any time now. But they vow to keep fighting for him until the very end. Just a couple of days ago, from the time that I'm sitting down to record this episode, St. Louis County prosecuting attorney Wesley Bell announced that he was seeking to vacate Marcellus's conviction. He wants to invoke a relatively new provision of Missouri law that allows prosecutors to intervene in cases when they have, quote, information that the convicted person might be innocent, end quote. In this case, he's referring to the DNA testing that was done back in 2016 and 2017 that proved Marcellus could be excluded as the contributor, and the DNA collected from the murder weapon belonged to someone else. Wesley Bell asked the St. Louis County Circuit Court, where Marcellus was convicted, to set a hearing to consider the DNA evidence and the other issues his appellate attorneys have raised over the years, including poor assistance of counsel at trial and prosecutorial misconduct. He specifically wants the court to consider the fact that all but one qualified black juror were intentionally excluded by the prosecution. This request couldn't come at a more crucial time. That's because at this very moment, Missouri's attorney general is asking the state Supreme Court to set a date for Marcellus's execution. So now what? Marcellus has maintained his innocence from the beginning, although two people allege he confessed, and there's no forensic evidence linking him to the murder. So will this new hearing to discuss the DNA evidence be set before his next execution date? Or will Marcellus's attorneys have to hope for another last-minute stay of execution? Only time will tell. Is Marcellus Williams a wrongfully convicted man? Or did the trial get it right the first time? Since these are very recent updates, I'll be following the case closely and bring any updates about Marcellus Williams to a special episode on Patreon. You can also follow the case for yourself and see what happens. To share your thoughts on the story, be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook. To find out what I think about the case, sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash forensic tales. After each episode, I release a bonus episode where I share my personal thoughts and opinions about the case. Don't forget to subscribe to Forensic Tales so you don't miss an episode. We release a new episode every Monday. If you love the show, consider leaving us a positive review or tell friends and family about us. You can also help support the show through Patreon. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Please join me next week. We'll have a brand new case and a brand new story to talk about. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. Forensic Tales is a Rockefeller audio production. The show is written and produced by me, Courtney Fretwell Ariola. For a small monthly contribution, you can help create new compelling cases for the show, help fund research, and assist with production and editing costs. For supporting the show, you'll become one of the first to listen to new ad-free episodes 
and snag exclusive show merchandise not available anywhere else. To learn about how you can support the show, head over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash forensictales, or simply click the support link in the show notes. You can also support the show by leaving a positive review or telling friends and family about us. Forensic Tales is a podcast made possible by our Patreon producers, Tony A., Nicole G., Christine B., Nancy H., Sherry A., Michael D., Nicola, Jerry M., Megan G., Ureli, Jerry, Ann F., Ken S., and Carol A. If you'd like to become a producer of the show, head over to our Patreon page or send me an email at Courtney at ForensicTales.com to find out how you can become involved. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, please visit ForensicTales.com. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Until then, remember, not all stories have happy endings. <laughs>